This episode is dedicated to Carl Lindbergh, martial artist, musician, and friend. The opinions expressed on this podcast should be construed only as the opinions of the respective opiners, and some content may not be appropriate for little dragons. Discretion is advised. I can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work. Determination. I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to Hiya, the only podcast that's broadcast for the badass with a brain and hopefully a sense of humor. Episode 64, recorded sometime in May, starts now. Okay, we are back once again here at the lovely Hiya Studios. I'm Dave Jones, your host. And we've got a good show for you today. Uh, but first, a couple of things we need to get out of the way. Um, oh, what's on that good show, you ask? Well, here's the deal. I was putting a show together and it got so epic I had to split it into two parts. So some things are going to come out of the order we recorded them in, but that shouldn't be too big a deal. I'm sure you guys will be able to play along. On this show, this episode... We have an interview with Matt Kaplowitz, who is the director-producer of a feature-length documentary called Girl Fight, a Muay Thai story. Not to be confused with any of the other girl fights, as he so ably corrects me during our interview. Um, and uh, it's a really interesting documentary about some women in mixed martial arts, I mean, actually Muay Thai specifically, and uh, they run an all-female gym. And uh, I highly suggest you check it out. Hopefully the interview will put you in that state of mind as well. You want to see that happen? Okay, tweaking the knobs over here, tweaking the knobs. Um, and also we have Ryan Lindsay along to do the news with me because y'all know he has a news podcast out now. If you don't, you do now. So you can go check that out. And uh, he'll put links to all that in the show notes, sweetheart that he is. So, yeah. Um, I know there was a huge gap between the last podcast and this one, and I hate to tell you folks, there's going to be a huger gap after I get these episodes out. <laughs> um, taking some time off from the podcast for a little while. Things have just gotten so crazy over here. It's become difficult, if not next to impossible to put one of these together. The kid, the second kid, you know, the one I didn't have when I started this thing is right at that age, a year and a half, almost two, where he is sucking up every moment of time and doing crazy baby things constantly. Um, in the next portion of this show that I put together, which will, I guess will be episode uh, 65, which I hate to break that even 64 Bagua thing, but hey, you got to do what you got to do. Um, you can hear the kids absolutely raising hell in the background, and I apologize for that, but Putting that in next week's episode, uh, we had Sambo Steve, uh, we had Craig, we had uh, Big Al, Large Marge, so we had a great chat, but uh, there were Lego avalanches going on in the background. It's just that sort of thing. It's <laughs> it's gotten really difficult, and uh, you know, I think I'm a little burned out on it for, for the moment. There's a, <clears throat> the, you know, you just do something for a while, and you need to shake it up a little bit. 
Um, not trying to kill the podcast, but I feel super guilty when weeks drag into a month or two months before I put a podcast out. So I just don't want to feel guilty. Folks, consider me off for the summer after these two shows come out, or at least for a while. That being said, and there'll be more talk about this scattered in the other material, some of it recorded before, some of it after, whatever, you know, just play along with me, would you? It's uh, There's plenty of stuff out there to listen to, including podcasts that nowadays seem to have almost the exact same guests at the same time as we do, so uh, hopefully you won't be too deprived. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I intend to come back to it. But uh, some things will change. Some things will be different. Hopefully, it'll be improved. And uh, hopefully, you know, the kid will be a little older and not such a constant source of, uh, uh, you know, difficulty (laughs) with doing anything, having any kind of life at all. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know what I was getting myself into. And I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of blather. We've got the really hot interview coming up. So brace yourselves for it, hi I fans. And uh, I'll speak with you just a touch more at the end of this one. All right, on with the show. Folks, we're back, and tonight in the house, in the interview chair on Skype, we have Matt Kaplowitz. Am I getting that right, Matt? That is correct. That's very good. <laughs> he is uh, was brought to my attention by a famous friend of the show, Stephen Kepfer, for uh, a new film that he's made called Girl Fight, and we're going to talk a lot about that. But first, as is our want here at Haya, we want to know what got you interested personally in martial arts and, you know, what kind of martial arts you do if you do them. And, and, and then we'll get, we'll sort of work our way to the film. All right. Sounds good. Uh, I guess my background in martial arts starts probably around, uh, I think about when I was in third grade and, uh, I started doing karate cause I was a little tiny nerdy kid. Not much has changed. I just got taller. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, you, you know how it is when you're, when you're a little kid who's got, uh, big teeth and bad eyes so you end up having some trouble so I started doing uh, karate when I was eight and then uh, about two years later I started doing judo and I ended up sticking with that for a good long time and I got my black belt in judo uh, before I graduated high school nice and uh, from there then uh, in between that I should say uh, I guess about time I was in middle school I kind of discovered the first UFC I, I was in like the pro wrestling section of some uh, VHS store that no longer exists and uh, they had bunch of the UFC tapes and I was like you know what let's let's try this this might be fun to take a look at so I got the first uh first VHS and hopefully uh enough of your readers know what a VHS is uh, <laughs> yeah you know I not only miss uh the early days of the UFC I miss those VHS stores I worked in one for a long time and and it was just good times uh, that, that cover art was amazing I wish I kept mine I ended up giving them to a friend eventually because I started getting them on DVDs and whatnot and uh, I gave the whole collection to a friend uh, for safekeeping, and 
I really the only thing I miss is those those really nice cover art that was on uh, all those tapes. But I don't miss the giant bulky amount of VHS tapes I used to have. Right, nor the pan and scan on everything. Or the <laughs> it wasn't the optimal format. But man, when you were a kid and you could walk into those sleazy little places and they could have anything. You know, I'm not talking about the blockbuster. I'm talking about your, you know, your corner mom and pop video store, your video library, your vision video, or whatever. You know, the independent chains that. Uh, well, the one I worked at made all their money on porn, but they used that money to stock the shelves with foreign art house films so all the UGA students uh, in Georgia would come over because it was the only place they could find movies that were actually you know, assigned to them in classes. You couldn't get them at the Blockbuster. That sounds like a very eclectic store that I wish still existed. You can get everything in one spot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and I got yeah, free movies because I worked there, so I wasted probably a decade with that. Oh, nice. Nice. Well... <laughs> And I mean, but uh, beyond the uh, the UFC tapes, I mean that that ended up also starting to get me more interested in uh, mixed martial arts as a whole and, and the art behind it. And so uh, I started buying all sorts of grappling instructionals, and I got into that. And then about I guess uh, I guess right before my soft, sophomore year in college, I started taking uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in Long Island at Matt Sarah's academy, one of his academies. I did that for a while. I got my blue belt, uh, and. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I had to stop it just for all sorts of injuries and oddness. Um, but I just recently, about I guess two years ago, started doing uh, Taekwondo for the first time. And so doing that, having a lot of fun with that, training at uh, a place near me called New York Black Belt Center. Nice. And uh, yeah, I've, I've done all sorts of different things. I've trained with a lot of guys to do different things. Uh, I, I don't consider myself a proper fighter or anything like that. I'm just a guy who is really interested in, in understanding, uh, I guess, as Bruce Lee likes to say, uh, expressing the, the physical body through uh, through martial arts expressing yourself through combat and it's not even just the combat aspect it's just i guess all the the mental part that comes with it as well because so really that's if you don't have that you don't have anything absolutely and you know let's face it most of us are not like you know top tier ufc material to begin with <laughs> but that does not mean we should not be out there doing martial arts having fun learning self-defense or just doing it for the joy of it you know yeah, I, I can't lie. Like when I was in college and I was really hardcore into training a lot more. So, uh, you know, I, I wanted to be the uh, welterweight champion of the UFC. Uh, that was my thing or, or lightweight, either one, whichever weight class I was going to fit into. That was my plan. Uh, it didn't happen clearly, but, you know, uh, hey, I can still dream. <laughs> exactly. Maybe you'll be the new uh, Olympic Taekwondo champion in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I'll meet Anderson Silva one day there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, again, before we skip along, let me ask you a couple of questions about this little martial arts journey that you've laid out, because uh, it's it's similar to one that we hear a lot, but how did you feel about transitioning from karate into something like judo? Now, I'm not sure exactly what kind of karate school you went to. I went to a Nishinru school when I was a kid, and there was some sparring, but it was mostly calisthenics forms, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and getting into something where you constantly had a hold of somebody were throwing them. I mean, did you get more joy out of it? Did you find more, uh, uh, you know, utility and that, and then moving into the grappling for self-defense, you know, what drew you in that direction? Yeah, I, I think so actually. Um, and you know, to be fair, when I started karate, I was like eight. So, you know, even the sparring you do, it's eight year old sparring. So right. it's not the greatest thing. Um, but you know, the reason I got into the judo thing was because my karate school had a program uh, as part of uh, advancing your belts where you had to do X amount of weeks of judo as well just so that you could learn how to fall, learn how to do basic throws. Uh, you know, pretty important stuff that you should have as a martial arts in general. You know, my, my school, uh, was, it wasn't like you know, we were doing super duty, uh, heavy duty cross training, but they knew that there was a definite benefit to having both these knowledges and especially for self-defense. 
knowing how to fall, knowing how to throw, knowing how to grapple. So uh, that, that's pretty much what got me into that. And I just stuck with it, I guess, because I, I kind of just liked it more, maybe. Uh, for a while, I was doing both at the same time. But, you know, as, as you do, as you get more deeper into school, that became harder to do. Right. Um, so I ended up just sticking with judo because I was having more fun with it. And then, again, from there, uh, just watching those UFC tapes, it got me more interested in grappling. And, uh, you know, again, being also a big pro wrestling fan, I was really into that. And I discovered Japanese uh, pro wrestling and Japanese MMA. And it's like that was like a whole new world for me once I discovered all that stuff. So I'd started coming to judo class and I'd start, uh, you know, working all sorts of things I shouldn't be doing in judo. You know, like if, if you're on your back in judo, you're getting pinned. That's pretty much end of the fight. I would just be like, eh, whatever, and just go for an armbar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, totally something you can't do or shouldn't really be doing or, or trying for leg locks. And that's, you know, you don't you don't win in judo with leg locks because they don't allow them. So, <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was something that was more fun. I guess I kind of liked the idea of it. You know, it was I, I just uh kind of fell in love with the with the idea of submission wrestling and and the history behind it as well and the history of the martial arts because i'm also you know on my website thefightner.com we talk about mma history and i've written for that on the topic with bloodyelbow.com as well Hmm. um you know there's such a rich history to catch wrestling and japanese judo and japanese pro wrestling and also of course american pro wrestling and the American martial arts scene, the American uh, competitive kickboxing scene from the 60s and 70s, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It all just kind of came together. And then I guess ultimately, uh, you know, I like the grappling arts a lot, but I like the striking arts a lot. I just kind of want to know everything as much as I can. I just want to soak it all up. And even if I don't ever compete in these things, I'm never going to be a, a savat master, but I don't mind learning about it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And it sounds like you've put a nice package together there. You got your striking, you got your tripping and throwing, and then you've got your, you know, <laughs> you got your grappling on the ground, hitting all your bases. Exactly. You never know. One day, uh, Fedor Emelianenko might just pop out behind a bush. You got to defend yourself. Exactly. <laughs> um. So uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and talk about the movie for a second here. I want to get right into this because it's fresh on my mind. I just got to see it yesterday. Uh, a little bit of an advance uh, viewing and. Uh, just hearing your background here, what drew you to the subject that you documented in this film, Girl Fight? How did you come across these people, and what made this the thing you wanted to make a film about? Okay, well, well first things first, uh, I, I got to make a quick correction for you, because uh, the full name of the movie is a Girl, Fi- um, Girl Fight, a Muay Thai story, and the reason I got to be really specific about that is because there's already two other movies named Girl Fight. Um, there's okay. one, yeah, my bad. One with uh, Michelle Rodriguez from the 90s, and then Anne Heche did another movie uh, like six or seven years ago as well. Okay. Um, Michelle Rodriguez version, awesome. Anne Heche version, meh. Yeah, uh, I figured as much. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I get a lot of slack for the name from a few people as well, but I'll, I'll, I'm going to go into a, an explanation for your, your listeners out there. Um, so I guess the short way to summarize this is um, – through my website, uh, that ended up helping me get work in uh, TV production. And so uh, in 2012, I went to work for a company that did the show MMA Uncensored Live for Spike TV. And that was a weekly live sports talk show on Spike uh, Thursdays at 11 p.m. So I did that for a year. And then I jumped ship to another company, um, which was continuing to do more MMA shows for Bellator MMA. Mm. And uh, so at this new company, uh, you know, they just, they weren't, I don't want to call them a startup because they weren't a startup. It was a, it was run by an established guy who just wanted to branch out from his old company and take what he had with him. And so, you know, at that point they were asking for, all their, well, uh, they're asking for all their employees if they had um, any ideas for shows and whatnot. And so I kind of had an idea and that would be girl fight. And so the reason how I found out about this thing was uh, there was a magazine called MMA business magazine, which is no longer around, unfortunately. And uh, in there, they do a gym spotlight, or they did a gym spotlight, I should say. And there was an article about 
the Girl Fight Gym, which was uh, an all-female Muay Thai academy that's in the Jersey Shore. And I saw that, and I was just like, well, hot and damn, this is a hot topic. I mean, A, you got the Jersey Shore. Right. B, it's all-female. It's combat sports. I mean, you've got all these different aspects, a lot of potential for who knows what. So, uh, you know, I went to my boss, and I showed him the magazine, and I said, hey, I got this idea. And he said, okay, that's great. Why don't you go back to work on what I gave you earlier? And so uh, I got shot down, basically. And so from there, I was like, all right, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to make a sizzle reel, and then I'm going to show it to them, and maybe they'll be interested. And um, so then I talked to the owner, Prairie Regillo, and she was all for the idea. At that point, I was still thinking sizzle reel, make a reality show pitch. Uh, I went down there, filmed for a few days, and by the end of it, I, I kind of saw something different. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, and that was a good thing because I wasn't sure really what to expect, but I figured maybe, you know, there's a bunch of women. It might be a lot of drama and this and that. But no, it was really, you know, a lot of the opposite. They were all very supportive of each other. Um, you know, it, it was throughout the 18 months I was filming there. It was a real learning experience for me in a lot of ways uh, in relation to feminism and women in, in combat sports and just women in general and how they're viewed in society. Um, so that, that's that's pretty much the long rambly version of it. I hope I hope I answered your question with that. <laughs> no, no, you, you nailed it right on the head. Um and yeah, you're talking about you know the, it seems like to me like the 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 two main antagonists in this film are you know of course the matches that they have and the people they have to fight, but also just the pummeling that 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 piece of New Jersey that area um, the seaside area and so forth uh, had gotten as a community. It sort of there was a really interesting parallel going on there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, and that, that was, I'm glad you picked up on that because that's one of the goals I wanted to have with the movie. Um, you know, as a martial arts fan yourself, you know, this is a movie for you because it's got the martial arts, it's got the combat element. But for viewers out there who are, let's just say, not interested in martial arts or wouldn't traditionally be interested in watching UFC or anything like that, or, or uh, you know, I've heard from a lot of female viewers who just aren't really necessarily into any of that stuff. But once they see the movie, they kind of get on board because, uh, you know, there's fighting, but the fighting isn't the main thing. Fighting is just part of telling the story, and it mirrors what's happening in their lives and their mentalities at that point in life, in this time in the movie. Exactly. Um, and, so, and so the Jersey Shore itself, uh, you know, 2012, we had Hurricane Sandy, and it devastated New York, devastated New Jersey horribly. Uh, the entire state accrued, uh, I believe it was over $300 million in damages. Um, and the Jersey Shore, which is where the Girl Fight Gym is located on, got hit the hardest. And so, you know, that was one of the first locations we went to was we had Prairie take us around uh, the island and just show us, you know, how bad things were. And it was amazing. It's, you know, to think it, it was only, I guess, about when we started filming, that was February. So it wasn't that long after the disaster happened. And just how much damage there still was. Houses were literally picked up off their foundation and moved. Uh, others were just turned upside down. It's, it was nuts seeing that kind of damage. And so, you know, through the course of 18 months that we filmed, slowly but surely the Jersey Shore is recovering. It was getting stronger here and there. But then, of course, as it's happening midway through filming, there's another fire that destroys what was left of the original shore uh, attractions. So, you know, it, it kind of went hand in hand with the story of the film in a way because here's the Jersey Shore itself trying to recover. And we have these women that are going through their own struggles with their fights and with their personal lives. And, you know, they, they kind of just tied together surprisingly well. It was... Uh, as horrible as it may sound, you know, like the disaster worked out pretty well for us. But yeah, well, I mean, it it, it just illustrates how you know, both uh, in, in life in general, a lot of times, you know, no matter how hard you try, it's often you know one step forward and two back, or two forward and one back, and that's just the nature of it. And it, it but it really underlines the spirit of the women, you know, that are that are competing and and the the subjects of the movie. Exactly, it's a lot of things that happen uh, with with a lot of the fights 
or fights that don't happen, uh, spoiler alert, uh, that, you know, are out of your control. And that's a problem a lot of people have in their lives, myself included, is when you have a problem and it's something that you can't even control. You have no ability to stop what's happening or to fix it. It just happens to you and you're stuck with it and now you got to deal with it. And uh, a lot of the movie is about what happens when you're in that kind of situation. How do you get past it? And especially when you're a fighter, you have to worry about getting into a ring with someone that wants to hit you in the face and knock you out. And you can't really think about that stuff that you had no control over because now here you are, you have to deal with the situation and you got to make the most of it. Right. But, uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, Prairie herself and, and a couple of the other fighters are, are, are more experienced, but, uh, you know, some of these fighters are new and to like train to fight one person and then have them back out at the last minute, you know, and basically their second fight, that's got to just destroy whatever mindset you had going in, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, and, you know, again, when you're an amateur fighter, because this this movie, uh, just to specify, you know, follows amateur fighters. These aren't going to be the next round of Rousey's most likely. If they do become that, and that's great. Um, but, you know, it's it's more about the everyday person that's doing this fighting thing and giving it a shot, seeing what it's like. And so for an amateur fighter especially, you know, have that kind of thing happen. That, that's the kind of craziness that happens in a UFC where a fighter misses weight the day of the event or they get dehydrated from cutting weight or some nonsense like that. But, you know, here it happens to us in an amateur situation and, you know, you're not really trained to deal with that when that happens. You're not a pro. You don't think of these situations. It happens, and you spend all that time training, getting ready, and then it's gone. Yeah. So, you know, and that's one of those struggles that's in the movie that we show. Uh, that's just out of that person's control, but now she has to deal with it. Yeah, and to sidebar real quickly, you know, just to underline how this movie is not just for martial artists, uh, although mostly the people listening to this podcast are martial artists, uh, some aren't, and a lot of them have spouses or whatnot that, you know, don't really get into this stuff, and my wife has done a little bit of martial arts, but it's been a while, and she was never into the competitive stuff at all. She calls the UFC snuggle, snuggle, punch, punch, Um, so (laughs) that'll give you some idea of her attitude about that sort of thing. But she watched the movie with me while I was watching it, and uh, I stepped out of the room for a second, and when I came back, uh, she had I didn't find it at the time, but she had scrawled on my notes. Um, awesome. Inspirational. I normally hate this shit, but this is awesome. Go girl fight. <laughs> so uh, That's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the kind of target audience I'm trying to get. You know, like when I was uh, in the early stages of, of doing the first edits and everything of, of the full 90-minute version, um, you know, the people I showed it to weren't fight fans at all. Um, they were just, for the most part, I was just getting a lot of my female friends to take a look at it, uh, or, or a lot of females that I knew that I work with in, in the industry, uh, and just have them take a look at it and a, a see if it captured their attention and B see if it engaged them enough that they were, they, they'd kept it all the way through and they were actually excited and interested in it by the end of it. And that seems to be what it was, you know, in the beginning I, I found a lot of people resistant. They didn't like the idea of the fighting and, um, you know, by the end of it, they, they liked it. They enjoyed watching the journey. And, you know, that's something I want to make clear, too. And that's something I I paid a lot of attention to was the fight scenes, because it is a movie about fighters and it's 18 months. So there's a lot of fights in the movie, but it's not a fight movie, I should say. Uh, There's the the fights are just part of what's happening. And I don't linger too much on those fights. You know, I I think you can tell me I'm hoping it's enough information and and the fights are good enough to keep you interested in them. But, you know, I didn't want to make it about the fight because I, I, you know, there might be some women that really aren't into that. that aren't into watching that. And that might turn them off. Uh, There might be some women who it might be a trigger for them for a trigger for some negative uh, emotional, something that's happened to them. So, uh, you know, I've tried to be very mindful of making it accessible to as many people as I can in that, in that event. 
Yeah, no, I, I thought the fights were well edited, and I, I did want to ask you how you made the editing choices you did. Like, normally, uh, most of these fights were three-round fights, a couple of them were five rounds, but you tend to, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seemed like you tended to sort of break the action into a couple of chunks, sort of condense it into maybe a two-round. You know, I rarely saw, like, three ring breaks in the fights, or, or round breaks, I'm sorry. Um, it, it seemed like, you know, it was condensed, but you were given both sides of the story and, uh, you know, I, I thought it worked well, but how did you, you know, how did you make editing decisions over, you know, these amateur fights? Well, it took a lot of time. I mean, the fights, especially there were, that was one of the things that went through the most changes because I found, uh, again, with a lot of my target audience and, and my testing audience in the beginning, um, you know, a lot of them thought the fights were really long and they were too long. At that point, they were maybe two and a half minutes, three minutes, uh, in, in my earliest stage, I had one fight being like four minutes long. And granted, if you know, if, if you and I are watching a fight live, we can sit through a 10-minute fight, and that's fine. But for the home audience, for the home viewer uh, who's watching this in a documentary format, they don't really want to sit through that full fight. Yeah. So, um, you know, part of my inspiration was looking at other documentaries. So uh, one I really like a lot is Fightville. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a really great documentary. And um, those fights are extremely short. If you actually watch that those fights that they show super quick. A lot of them are only the finish because um, they were mostly finishes. Uh, as far as I can remember, I think there weren't really too many decisions. So they were just, right, you'd have yeah. a 20 second clip of a fight and that was your fight. And that's a 90 minute documentary. Total time spent in a cage is probably less than five minutes total. Right. So, you know, that's one of the things I considered and same thing with other ones I, I've watched that I've liked like smashing machine, uh, which is an oldie, but it's still a great one. Um, you know, you don't linger that long. You find the most important parts of the fight, the ones that mean the most, the best footage. And that's what you show. And then, you try and tell the story with, what, with what's happening outside the ring. Um, you know, pretty much every fight I went to, uh, and this is something I learned from working with, with uh, a lot of the Spike TV Bellator shows, is the more cameras, the better. So that's one of the things I slurged on was having extra cameramen everywhere. Right. So, you know, as you saw, we've got, uh, usually I was ringside filming the fight. Then I had a second camera filming the corner people. Uh, then I had a third camera either wide or in the audience. And then uh, for a few fights, there was another fourth camera that was uh, just doing either, again, a wide shot or, or a different part of the audience or doing slow-mo, uh, just doing something different so I could just capture every angle and make sure I didn't miss anything because, you know, really, the fight is in the ring, but everything else that's happening outside of the ring is what adds a lot more drama to it, and it kind of puts you in the ring as well. Um, you know, this is something I've seen in a lot of, uh, not even documentaries, but just action movies in general, is trying to find a way to capture the intensity of what happens in the ring when you can't be in the ring. Right. So, you know, a lot of it was getting as close as I could with my camera in there, but I also realized another part of it was just showing how other women and other people in the audience, I should say. But in the case of this movie, uh, you know, the Girl Fight Gym has a huge following. And there's a big, big school. It's a big, it's a big school. They get a lot of women that come to their events. So, you know, their reactions are part of the story, too. Like watching them, uh, watching their coach fight and seeing what happens when she's in tr- trouble. You know, that, that kind of adds to the drama and tells the story. So that tended to be uh, to shift my focus a little bit towards that, towards the reactions. Uh, and especially to, to help the audience that doesn't really understand fighting as much to translate what's happening in the ring to the average person. Yeah, and it works well and and not just the camera work but the the sound design uh, the you know the sound recording was really well done too because you were able to get, you know, some uh, some good sound from both inside the ring and from the spectators outside. So um surely you had a couple of extra sound men running around there too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's it's uh you know, we, we haven't talked about it yet, but that's part of my Indiegogo is trying to uh, help Help finish funding that because uh, I had to hire some some mixers and uh, you know they had a tough job to work with and man I mean you know we're, we're talking about struggles and what the women went through in the Jersey Shore struggle 
I could tell you stories about the struggle just making this movie. I mean, this it's like <laughs> that should be its own documentary. And and part of it was uh, 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 dealing with the issues with sound. I had for one of the fights um, with uh, when we filmed. I think it was the, the first Deanna fight and the first Hazel fight. Uh, I actually had a camera person filming the corner people, um, but the sound didn't work on the cameras for some reason. The sound just cut out. And I spent months trying to recover that sound. And eventually I was able to get something, but it sounded so horrible I couldn't use it. Um, so, yeah, the sound design was something I had to go uh, outside for. Uh, and and I'm glad to hear it worked out because that's something I've worried about. But I'm glad to hear that you were able to, you know, listen to it and, and enjoy the sound. That makes me happy to hear. No, it did work out. And, and I can, you know, I, I've i worked on a few movies myself. I just started a new one today. Now I'm in the background. I'm one of those scenic artist kind of people. But uh, in my experience, every single movie is a struggle of Herculean proportions. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I can't even tell you how many times the computer I'm doing this interview with you on right now I've had to replace uh, the hard drive on it twice since I started filming this movie. Yeah. <laughs> and you probably lost something you really needed and had to go back and try to get it again in the process. <clears throat> uh, I actually, uh, this is, it's a horrible story, but this is true. Uh, about halfway into the filming, I had to upgrade my Final Cut because I, I edited this movie on Final Cut. And that's a lesson learned. I'm not going to ever do that again. And here's why uh, Final Cut did a massive upgrade to itself and it essentially wiped out my footage and my archives oh. yeah i lost everything and it was about three months before i was able to actually put everything back together again find my backups get them working uh and even then uh months later i'd still find things not linking uh oh man and that, that was one of the worst things ever because you know here you, here you are you spent all this time out there filming all this stuff you worked so hard and then poof it was gone yeah and that, that's just one of the craziness but you know again that was just one of those things uh I, I can look at it, I can look back on it now, and it, you know, at the time it was the worst thing in my life. But now I'm like, well, I, I actually got through that. I made the movie. It's done. I went on my journey like like these women did with their own struggles, and you know, this is the end result. Here we are. Yeah. Well, uh, cool. And you know, watching the film over the 18 months uh, or so that you shot this, you know, not only do you, you see these people progressing in their personal lives and you know what's going on in the ring, but uh, you know, at one point they 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 mentioned like we don't want to just be known as brawlers, and and I don't know if this is editing choices or if this is the way it was actually going. Maybe you can tell me. But you know, early in the film, the the fighting they were doing and even the training did seem brawlier. You know, <laughs> and as it went along, you you could see more technique emerging and, and and you know a little bit more refined sort of thing going on there. Was was that the actual arc that was going on at the time? Yeah, and then that was actual footage. That wasn't me picking and choosing at all. Um, you know, the way I edited the movie was every time I'd film something, I'd come back and I'd start putting it together. And, you know, as I'd get more footage or more of this and that, I would add to older pieces. But for the most part, you know, each each segment essentially was encapsulated to a certain period of time. Um, and so the part you're talking about, like in the beginning, how they look a little brawly, I guess we'll say. And then towards like the midpoint, they start tightening up a lot. That's just that's what happened naturally. It was amazing. I remember being there that day. And just saying that to them, I was like, you guys have changed. It's been, you know, I, I'm trying to think how many months that was into the production. But, um, you know, definitely not, I want to say half, but it was probably earlier than that. Um, right. you know, there was a big change. Even now, there's a big shift in how they've been training, how they've been fighting, uh, the fighters they're putting out. Um, and I'm sure you can see it, too, in Prairie's fights. Uh, you know, in the movie, Prairie fights three times. Yeah. And I think each time she got better and better and better. And see it, she's tighter. Um, you know, one of her problems that she had as a fighter was uh, remembering to throw kicks. She likes to punch. She comes from a boxing background, so she likes to punch. And um, 
as the movie progresses, I, I don't remember if I showed it as much as I wanted to, but she was starting to throw kicks here and there, and that was actually a big thing for her. So, you know, she was adjusting more to having a fighter's mentality uh, and just, you know, she was maturing as a fighter, and I think that showed across the board. Yeah, it really did, and I, I don't want to spoil, you know, one of the main points of the movie, but yeah, suffice to say, there really is a journey that you can witness going on there, and it, it gets to a really nice place by the end of it. Yeah, it's, it's good to hear, you know, and it, it was a tough journey. It's not an easy journey to watch, and I, I give a lot of credit to these women for letting me film this. You know, uh, I can't imagine being on the opposite end of that. I can't imagine having someone stick a camera in my face for 18 months while I'm at fights and doing all these personal things. Um, you know, they, they were troopers, and... You know, it was it was really great seeing them go on this journey. It was it was hard to watch sometimes, and I don't mean that as in you know like in a negative way. I just mean watching them go through these struggles, and you just wanted to be like do something to make them better, but you can't, or something to make the situation better, but you can't. Um, well, that, you know, that that brings to mind one of the questions I I, I did have for you, which is uh, especially early on, like for instance when uh, Hazel and Deanna are doing their first fights. Yeah. Um. You know that the. the the nervousness and, and just, you know, everything else is just extremely palpable in that. And we've all been there before, you know, whether it's for a, a fight or a, a, a performance or a speech or something, just the looks on their faces, it's like, oh, I've worn that look before. You could tell they were just, you know, almost mortified. And I, I wondered, uh, and they did come around fine, but, uh, you know, it, it was just really palpable the way you captured it. And uh, it produced sort of a sympathetic reaction in me because, as I said, I've been there too. Um, do you, at at any point were you afraid that, like, when they were going through some of these first time things or whatever, that having the cameras and stuff there might actually be throwing a lot of extra pressure on them? It was something I considered early on, and it was uh, something I addressed with them early on as well. And you know, when I talked to Perry about this, telling what I wanted to do, what what the uh, what the goal was. Uh, you know, they understood what, what it was, and I did my best as well. I told them, you know, if you need me to go, tell me, and I'll, I'll go. I'll leave you alone. Um, you know, like as, as you saw at one point in this, uh, in that part you're talking about, that's towards the beginning when Hazel and Deanna have their first fights. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at one point, Hazel did walk out, as you saw, and she wanted to go out and do something private. And so I kept my distance, as you saw. Uh, and that was part of it, too, was being sensitive to their needs. Because I know, you know, again, it's your first fight. You have those jitters. And it's, it's like anything, you know, it's, it's, it's anxiety. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as someone who's got his own issues with anxiety and depression and that kind of stuff, I know how to treat that subject, I feel like. So, you know, I knew how to keep my distance, but still do my best to keep it as intimate as I could. Um, you know, be the fly in the wall, but don't be the fly in your face buzzing around your head. Yeah, the fly in the so, ointment. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly, yeah. The, the fly in the, in the tie liniment, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was, that was something I, I had to be very careful of, very cautious of. Um something I, I had to keep an eye out for as well. You know, I, I did my best to tell the story, but do it in a sensitive way and without being too in your face. And I, I'm, I, you know, I, I, they never complained to me after. So I'm hoping that means they didn't hate what I did <laughs> at the time. Right. No, it seemed like everybody, you know, it, it, it's, it, it seemed like it was almost serendipitous. You know, the, the, the group that you found, the community they were in, the stage they were at, uh, it was a, it was a really good choice. I think. Yeah, you know, like I said, I originally, I originally thought it was going to be, you know, a Jersey Shore reality show with fighters, but no, it was the opposite. It was a, a group of very supportive women who helped each other out, who talked to each other, who communicated, uh, and I think that's something that you need to see, and, and women especially, they need to see this kind of thing um, for women athletes, women fighters, and just, you know, as a, as a fellow nerd, if you will, you know, right now it's a big thing with um, female representation in comics and movies and video games and, and right representation, the correct way 
to present a female in these uh, types of media. And so, uh, you know, that was a big thing for me that I, and that's something I learned about as I filmed this too, was, you know, what, I, what can I do to make this work for an audience that I'm not part of, you know, I, I'm, I'm biologically not a part of that audience. So I have to do my best as a male filmmaker to understand what will work for them as best as I possibly can. Yeah. Well, I, I think you did a good job of that, but, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it, in the community that you or the circumstances you just described with all this attention lately to things like Gamergate and all that stuff, um, do you fear any sort of backlash from any portion of the martial arts community that says, oh, I went to see a movie, Thai movie, and it's all about chicks. It's all this suburb, you know, <laughs> like people are mad at Mad Max because there's an equal lead female character in it. It just yeah. seems like there's that sort of tenor out there. Have you seen any of that reaction yet, or do you expect any? I, I expect it. I mean, luckily, you know, this is still early phase. You know, right now we're looking to get distribution. Uh, you know, right now the only way you can kind of see the movie is to donate to the uh, the Indiegogo. Uh, but we're looking to get distribution, and I imagine that could be a problem. But you know what? They're not my audience, and they need to get used to it. It's, uh, you know, like we say in comics, that the fandom has changed, and uh, this isn't the boys' club anymore, and, and martial arts especially is not a boys' club. Uh, you know, Ronda Rousey is the hottest attraction right now in the UFC. She's yeah. the number one selling point. Um, and who who knew? You know, and and it's about time. It's time for a change. And you know, frankly, I'm I'm kind of happy that I'm part of the change now. I, I feel very connected to this now. It's something I didn't really think about, and frankly, didn't understand that well a few years ago. And uh, doing this just really opened my eyes up to to a lot of new things. And uh, you know, I, I hope the martial arts community is ready for it because uh, you know, if they're not, there's a much bigger audience out there beyond them. And uh, I'm not discrediting my audience because these are my roots, but you know I want them to grow with me. That's that's kind of what I'm trying to say here is I want them to come with me on this journey and open your horizons and understand the other side of the spectrum and why it's important that this kind of thing is shown and happens. Yeah, and I think this will be able to play to both sides. Do you do you have any plans for taking this to film festivals or anything currently? We've entered a bunch already. Uh, Going to be entering some more. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, we have an Indiegogo campaign right now, and and part of the funding. Uh, one of the aspects of it is to help us enter more film fests because film fests are not cheap. Um, no. So, you know, that's, that's a definite part of it. That's a way to get seen. Um, you know, we have all sorts of plans for that, but uh, I'd love to get in some film fests. I'd love to win some awards too. That'd be awesome. But, you know, one step at a time. First, we got to get in them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this time next year can, right? Oh, I wish. <laughs> I mean, you know, unfortunately, and again, I'm going to go back now to once again, talk about my own struggles with this movie and my own, uh, you know, things out of your control. We actually entered Tribeca. And uh, we didn't get in, and that's frankly my own fault because um, I guess about a month before the dead the deadline was Christ was Christmas Eve, and a month before this I tore my hamstring at a taekwondo tournament. So, yeah, and so this is already a good start of the story. And, yeah, uh, classic martial arts story. We love them. <laughs> exactly, and so you know I, I decided on a whim. I had two weeks ago. I was I was going to enter Tribeca just because I wanted the movie to be finished. I didn't. I was rushing myself basically. I, I put all this pressure on myself to do it. And I was rushing myself to get to the finish line when it wasn't ready. And so, you know, I, I hired some mixers. That's when the mixing for the movie began. And it didn't end in two weeks. Let's, let's put it that way. Uh, it needed a lot more work than just two weeks. So, right. you know, Christmas Eve, I'm all the way downtown uh, in China, or Chinatown. Canal. It's, it's, it's Tribeca is what it is. Tribeca. Down there, limping because I can't walk. This is the first time I've left my house and, and gone on a bus or subway since my injury. So I'm limping on a rainy day. Uh, I've got this like makeshift cardboard box because I didn't have a cardboard box. I just took some pieces of cardboard together and taped them together, uh, threw in two copies of the movie and and hoped that they would get it in time. And uh, of course, with my luck, I forgot to put the entry form in. <laughs> <laughs> 
so that was that was crisis number one and i i was really lucky that uh one, one of my girlfriend's friends worked near there and she was able to print it out and drop it back off to them so that was okay that was crisis averted but then i got home and realized i sent them a version of the movie that wasn't synced correctly the audio is off so I, pretty much all that pressure i put on myself it just in the end it, it screwed me and it was uh you know, again, just one of those horrible lessons I had to learn the hard way, but it's it's kind of funny looking back on it now. Yeah, yeah no, the, those kind of lessons make for great feet of clay stories, and uh, frankly, I don't really think there's any other way to actually learn the lesson <laughs> than to go ahead and let it beat you up, you know? Like, all, all you can really do is just spread the word so it doesn't happen to anybody else, and the lesson is don't rush yourself. <laughs> all right. <laughs> you know, it was, this, is, um, this was probably the longest I've ever worked on a single project as well, uh, and, I, you know, I'm still fine-tuning it now. We're actually... We just got the final mix in today. That doesn't mean it's necessarily all the way done. It's you know I've had a final mix since December, so <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping we're, we're going to be crossing that finish line soon. But yeah, lesson learned. Uh, so many lessons learned. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Uh, well, um, before we we move on to a couple of other things, uh, there there I always forget to ask at least one good question when I'm interviewing someone. So, uh, as regards the movie, what have I forgotten to ask you? You know, what maybe your your favorite anecdote about the film or something that we just haven't touched on yet? Uh huh. That that's probably something I should throw to you. I mean, uh, did the movie leave you thinking about anything else? I mean, let me ask you. I'm, I'm going to interview you now. I mean. By the end of the movie, what were you thinking about it? Uh, you know, what, what was the story to you? And uh... Okay, well, again, I'm going to try to avoid being spoilery about the thing because I, I think there are some things that it, it's better to have revealed as you go along in the film. Um, but uh, the, the maturation of the lead character, especially uh, uh, Prairie, at the end after her last fight, and we won't say anything about how it went, but just you could tell such a vast difference in, in the way she was handling it than her previous fights that were in the movie. And, uh, you know, I th that combined with the just the genuinely <laughs> um, uplifting tone of, you know, watching that whole community try to struggle back. And, you know, so, and a lot of these people are outside the box people, you know, they're not what you expect in a movie there's you know there's all sorts of different relationships in there and the whole thing just uh you know kind of gelled together into a nice warm glow at the end for me so i was <laughs> i was surprised that there was actually kind of an uplifting film in the end you know yeah uh, you know uh, as you saw in the movie it's these, these women go through a tough journey uh you know and, and i was lucky enough to be allowed to film that and uh yeah just looking back on it now it's it's kind of not seeing what happened but uh, yeah, the, the maturation was was a great thing to see. Um, yeah, I, I got nothing. No, I, I'm trying to think of, uh, of anything else I should throw in there about the film or any any other good stories. But you know, there, there was so much of that I had to leave on the cutting room floor too. I mean, there was a great little subplot with uh, where Prairie's dad was actually there for the first fight that she has in the film. But uh, I had to, I had to leave it on the cutting room floor because it just didn't fit anywhere else. Um, you know, I, I'd say that's probably one of the uh, the things I, I learned a lot and I can talk about was uh, just learning how to be a better editor and be a better filmmaker as well. You know, there's a lot of things I learned that I'm going to take into the next movie that I do, whatever that's going to be. Um, but in this one too, you know, I, I learned how to be a much tighter editor, I feel like. And part of that was just having 18 months worth of footage to deal with. I, can you imagine 18 months worth of footage? That's, that's essentially, I got a terabyte hard drive. It's all a girl fight, nothing but girl fight. All right. <laughs> so, you know, to condense that much into 90 minutes, something, uh, I, I don't wish for too many people to have to deal with. Cause that's insane. <laughs> and, you know, to have to cut down, what would equate to hours upon hours of filming into a four minute segment. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, 
Yeah, and this has got to be the hardest thing to that is, you know, uh, you're working on a documentary, so you're not storyboarding this stuff out. You kind of have to keep track of everything in your head on some level, um, you know, to be, if you're in the editing bay, you need to know how this connects to the last thing and the next thing and, you know, where the good parts are. Don't stop too early looking through this footage because I know there's something good. You know, it's it's got to be a huge chore. Oh, yeah, and, you know, working in, in TV, I've learned that, you know, uh, what most producers do is they'll do a paper cut. So they'll have someone else watch the footage and, and transcribe it, and that's typically been me. And then the, uh, the producers will come along, and they'll make a paper cut of all that stuff with all the time codes, and then they'll hand it to the editor. So it's a whole three-step process. But in the case of being a documentary that's uh, essentially made just by one person, you have, you have to be all those people. And uh, me being me, uh, I didn't make any paper cuts. I just did it off the top of my head. I, I watched interviews again, and I would just do it piece by piece. And uh, – you know, luckily I've got a pretty decent memory for this stuff, so I think I didn't miss anything that was too, uh, you know, anything that was wasn't already in there that wasn't worth putting in. But uh, yeah, it was it was quite the process, and uh, you know, I, I kind of want to do it again. Uh, a sick part of me wants to do, do it all over again. <laughs> oh, you know, you're gonna do it. Do you do you have an inkling yet of what your next project is gonna be? Uh, I've got some ideas of things I'd like to pursue, uh, both fictional and and non-fictional. So I'm gonna see what happens with this movie first. You know, like, like any good fighter, I'm not looking past my first fight. Right. Uh, so you know, I want I want to get through this fight. I've got my goals in mind. I got my championship in sight. But first things first, I got to get the knockout here. Right. <laughs> and you're poised. Uh, how close are you to? I know only people who are backing you on Indiegogo right now can actually see the film. But uh, do you have any idea when it might be more broadly available to the public? Well, the uh, the political answer is soon. That's probably about all I can say. But it's probably not going to be that soon yet. Uh, we're going to see because. Uh, some stuff is happening in the next month. I'm going to be talking to a lot of people, uh, I'm sure, over the course of the summer uh, and trying to get this thing seen. One of my short-term goals is getting this on PBS, uh, especially for you know the, the local New Jersey affiliate here. Um, so that would be something I'd like to do, hopefully before the end of the summer or maybe the fall. But that's, again, it's one of the things that's out of my hands. But I'm going to be fighting hard to get this movie seen because uh, I didn't spend two years working on this to just have it sit on my computer. <laughs> No, and based off what I've seen, I'm, I'm sure you'll get it out there. The uh, The dialogue was all synced <laughs> on oh, what I saw, yeah. <laughs> the music came in at the right time. That's all I care about, interview over. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's working. Get it out there. Yeah, you're poised to put this thing in the ring, so we'll definitely be following that and looking forward to what you do next. Um, uh, is there anything else martial arts related you want to chat about for a second? We've got a couple of minutes left. I promise not to keep you on for too long, but, uh, uh, you, you mentioned you had seen the most recent UFC, which I'd missed. Uh, do you have any strong opinions on what happened there? Can you refresh me? <laughs> uh, well, very good main card. I'd have to say, um, you know, uh, Daniel Cormier is our new, uh, light heavyweight champion until John Jones gets his, uh, well, as, as Daniel Cormier put it at the end of the fight until John Jones gets his shit together, uh, <laughs> DC is our new champion and I couldn't be happier for him. Uh, you know, I, I unfortunately picked Johnson to win, but I wanted Cormier to win. So I'm happy I was wrong. Right. Uh, and, and man, it was, you know, I, I'd love to see a rematch, but on the other hand, I also don't want to see Cormier take those kind of shots ever again from Johnson. Cause that man hits hard and, you know, I, I had a feeling that Johnson would theoretically wear him down with those hard punches, but it was quite the opposite. It was just Johnson wearing himself out uh, from just having zero stamina. So, you know, but, but taking nothing away from from Cormier, I mean, uh, that that guy is is sick. Yeah. <laughs> and just seeing what he could do with his takedowns and his grappling, and you know, the, the it was an impressive win. And it, what bothers me still is that here's Anthony Johnson, and the man still doesn't know a basic hip escape from being off his back and has zero stamina. And this guy's a been fighting for how long now? It's 
you know, that, that was uh, it was great to see that. And uh, of course, uh, seeing Chris Wyman fight is always is always fun. Uh, you know, Chris was was the first person I ever did a documentary on. That was um, the first thing I did when I launched my website, thefightnerd.com, was uh, as part of my launch, I wanted to have something really cool and exclusive to get people to come over to it. So uh, I did a doc about Chris Wyman back in 09, before he was anybody. He, he was basically just training at uh, the Longo Academy in Long Island, and he was getting ready for his first fight. So I was there documenting that thing for about two months, I guess, maybe. Um, that, that's all on YouTube for free. You guys can check it out uh, on, on my channel, which is youtube.com slash thefightnerd, or just type in Chris Wyman, All-American, you'll probably find it. And, uh, you know, compared to what, I, what I've done, you know, here in 2013 through 2015, it's a big leap in terms of everything. But, um, you know, big Weidman fan, and it was great seeing him get the win over Belfort. Uh, and I, I do hope the fans stop doubting him. That's what, he, again, he asked for at the end of the fight was, you know, he told the fans to stop doubting him. And they need to. It's about time to realize this is the Weidman era. And the only way he's going to give up that belt is when he gets injured and has to be put on the shelf for a while. Right. Which, you know, the combat sports will eventually happen. But. You know, when does a person, how do these people handle that inevitability of, of injury and the slowdown and stuff? How, what do you see, you know, when you're covering these things at ground level with people dealing with this stuff? Frankly, I think it's still kind of an issue because, uh, you know, I feel like right now, especially this the last few years for the UFC, it's been a time of transition. A lot of the older guys are finally starting to retire. But even then, how do we define older? Because, you know, here we are after the Belfort Weidman fight. People are once again telling Belfort to retire because he lost. Um, you know, and, and a lot of these MMA fighters, they get out of it way too late and they never had a backup plan. And so it, it's good to see that a lot of these younger fighters maybe start, may, may start to realize that, you know, enough's enough. I can move on to something else now. I, I've met my goals, whatever they may be. Uh, I, c- I don't need to prove anything else to myself. I can do something different now in my life. Uh, some guys want to be fighters forever and they'll do that forever. Um, you know, then you've got cases like Mark Coleman who, uh, you know, has to do a, a Kickstarter to raise money for a hip operation or, or Gary Goodridge who fought way longer than he should have been fighting, and now he's got uh, CTE and, and serious brain damage issues. Right. So, um, and, and, you know, that's something we're seeing now is the what happens in the longevity of this form when you take that much damage to your head, what's going to happen to you? So, um, you know, a lot of fighters, they're, they're young, they're, their bodies are still okay with taking this, their bodies are still elastic enough that it's not a problem. Um, and they just think they're invincible right now. And that's what, what, you know, when you're young, you think you're invincible. You are. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I then one day you wake up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I just turned 30 last year and I already feel like I'm 65. So it's, uh, you know, I, I, I would, I would like to see, I guess, more things happen to keep fighters safe as their careers go on. Um, and maybe more fighters realizing, you know, there, there is a point where, you, where it's okay to stop. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, if, it's interesting. If, so you got guys like you know, but then again, you have guys like Robbie Lawler, Dan Henderson, Andre Arlovsky, who people have told to retire for years, and here they are having a resurgence of their abilities and their popularity. So who knows? I mean, that that is the nice thing about MMA is because it's not boxing or kickboxing, and there is a little bit less blows to the head, uh, and there's more grappling. Then you know you can have a longer career. I mean, look at Randy Couture, yeah. but um, not everybody's Randy Couture. Not everybody's that genetic freak. So, right. You know, it, it's time will tell. I, I hope that. Um, you know, measures are taken to keep these guys safe in the long term because that's really what's more important. It shouldn't be about making money. It should be about the safety of the guys who are making you the money. Yeah, and uh, the sport is big enough now that, you know, if, if they make it a reasonable way up the ladder, a lot of these guys, if they retired early, they could, you know, still healthy, they could they could start a gym and make a good living in their hometown just based on their name and their sport, you know. And hopefully more stuff like that, you know, is is there for people to sort of entice them. Don't, you know, don't, don't fight till you're completely broken. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's kind of funny to me, and this is uh, something I, 
in pro wrestling that used to happen a lot in the 70s, 80s, it still happens nowadays, was, you know, a guy would go to college for football, uh, maybe he'd get injured there, or maybe he'd go past it, he'd go to pros, but he'd get injured and he can't do football anymore, and his career is over in football, that's, that's the end, and he's, you know, you're, you're like 20-something, you can't do the one thing you've trained for years and hope to do, you're out, and then they jump over to pro wrestling, yeah, and they have a career for twenty, thirty years. So, uh, you know, I know Matt Riddle uh, has been uh, doing tryouts at WWE, uh, WWE, and there there's another guy who fought for Bellator that just did a tryout recently as well. So, you know, maybe we need more things like that. Maybe we need more things like Matt Morris, where grappling is is a thing, and they've got something else to do where they can still stay in the combat sports, but stay in something a little bit relatively safer. And I shouldn't say pro wrestling is that much safer because there's just as much head trauma from all those bumps there. But you know, <laughs> right. it, it's another it's another option for. Them. Uh, you know, yeah, it's but just like with the football players, you know, it, it, at some point there's just not enough real estate agencies and car dealerships to give them all a job. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, when you're young and you feel invincible and you think you can do anything and you think you're gonna do it forever, but you know, it's always good to have a backup plan. It's always good to have something else that you can rely on in case your fight career doesn't get where you want it to go. Yeah. Okay, hi all listeners, you heard it here first. Diversify. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, it's been great, and we're running up on our time limit, Matt. Um, first thing, I want you to go back over, give everybody your your internet digits, the Fight Nerd, the YouTube channel, all of that stuff, and uh, talk about your the Indiegogo campaign and where people can go to support that and support the film Girl Fight. All and, right, so all the listeners out there, I want you to pause this, go grab a pencil and some paper, and get ready to start writing things because I've got a lot of things to tell you. And we'll put it in the show notes for you, too. <laughs> wonderful this, this is a man that's a pro on the other end of the skype here <laughs> i have a guy that does that for me <laughs> oh okay so, yeah, you are a pro. you know you know how to delegate that's a smart man's way to do it exactly all uh, right so if, if you guys want to check out the uh the website itself for the documentary uh girl fight a muay thai story is thegirlfightstory.com uh and from there you'll get links to everything which includes our facebook and our twitter as well as the indiegogo campaign uh, which is really important. We need to get eyes on it. And uh, right now the goal for that is to raise 5000 to help with the next step, which is finding the distribution. Um, we need to create promotional materials. We need to finish uh, any other post-production things that might pop up, anything else that happens with the mixing of the audio. Um, we need to enter more film festivals. And that's an expensive thing to do. A lot of listeners might not know, but to enter a film festival, it's not free. You have to pay for that service for someone to sit there and watch your movie and tell you whether or not it's worth putting in their event. So, you know, for example, Tribeca Film Festival was $100. That was $100 wasted, unfortunately, but you get my point. You know, these are things, we, these are expenses we have to pay. Uh, I'd like to make some commercial DVDs. I want to make some posters, postcards. And another goal I have is also to get proper representation. Uh, and this is for any, mm. any novice filmmakers out there. If you want to make it big, and if you have a film that you've done or something that you've done that you want to reach to a broader audience, um, you will need representation. And that's something I, I will probably need to hire. I'll need to hire a PR person to handle a lot of this stuff. This is all long-term stuff, um, and, and meeting that Indiegogo goal will definitely help to fund the majority of that. Uh, you know, the most part of this movie has been paid for out of pocket, uh, but it's been a labor of love, and I'm hoping that it shows in all the work that I've done. And uh, you know, so please check out the Indiegogo campaign. You can see the 60, uh, the sorry, the 30-second trailer, which is the teaser, and then the two and a half-minute trailer that'll tell you the basic story of what you can expect to see in the film. Um, and again, with that Indiegogo trailer. Uh, and with the Indiegogo campaign, you know, if you cannot make a donation, if you cannot contribute, we do have some great rewards if you can. But if you can't, please just share it. Please watch the trailer, put it on your Facebook wall, send it out on Twitter, Instagram, whatever you have, and just spread the word so that maybe someone who you know might be able to fund it or might be able to know somebody that can fund it. 
Uh, and and you know, at the end of the day, too, it's it's a it's a movie that has a positive message for all genders. It's not just a, a movie about women that fight. It's a universal movie that has a message about self-esteem, confidence, dealing with the struggles in life, and getting over them and being better because of them. And uh, you know, these these women are the example of that. So please just check it out, share it, contribute if you can, and uh, just keep spreading the good word. And uh, as for myself, you can check out my site uh, on thefightnerd.com. I'm on Twitter and Facebook as well. Just type in the fight nerd on any of those things and you'll find me. And um, that pretty much sums up my long rambly diatribe of where I am on social media. (laughs) Brilliantly done, sir. Thank you. I I practiced all night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Matthew Kaplowitz, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. And I really enjoyed the film. And hi, y'all listeners. Go ahead and get out there. Do what the man says. You know, if you can't donate, that's fine. But share this thing around. Let's help him push it forward. And, uh... And if you, uh, the only way to see it right now is to do, donate. So I would say it's worth your time. Exactly. Yeah. If you guys uh, donate twenty five, that's the uh, the low low price of twenty five. You will get a digital download of the film once we complete the uh, the Indiegogo, and that'll be basically the first way to see it. Uh, and if you spend fifty, you can put your name in the in the special thanks section as well. So something uh, to consider. But you know, here's hoping that maybe uh, this time next year you can buy it on DVD or something. <laughs> Absolutely. But go out there and get it now while it's a mere pittance. Please do, yes. (laughs) It's been a real pleasure speaking with you, and uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's been fun. Yeah, likewise. For the Marshall Brain. Logic is like a sword. Is martial arts weapons training relevant for modern self-defense? One of my goals in the Marshall Brain commentary series is to do my small part to promote the importance of logic and reason in the martial arts world. Yet, one of the programs offered at my academy, the Filipino Martial Arts and Majapahit Weaponry, is a program that trains people in the use of sticks, swords, knives, staffs, spears, and a variety of other weapons that might be considered anachronistic, out of place in the modern world of firearms. Is it logical and reasonable to do this? In my opinion, yes. Training in a high-quality martial arts weapons program leaves you well-positioned to pick up and use almost anything as an improvised weapon. For the martial artist concerned with self-defense, this alone is sufficient reason to pursue weapons training. But, as the infomercials say, that's not all. There are additional benefits to weapons training you may not have realized. Let's examine some of them. 1. Enhanced perceptual speed. The tip of a sword or stick reaches speeds much greater than those reached by a hand or foot. Combined with a set of quality empty hand striking skills, developing the ability through training to see and anticipate the movement of a weapon's tip makes it easier to see punches and kicks coming. 2. Superior 
footwork, and spatial awareness. If you have experienced the result of allowing the business end of a weapon to touch you at combat speed, or if you can vividly imagine it, you will have far more respect for the weapon than for a hand or foot. This develops a fighting style in which you are not comfortable standing still and trading blows with the opponent. Instead, you will have enhanced your footwork to augment defensive tactics like blocking and parrying. If you learn to move your body well against the superior speed and power of a weapon, imagine how much easier moving against an unarmed opponent can be. 3. The Specific Benefits of Double Weapon Training Training with a weapon in each hand can be very useful for developing coordination in your weak side hand. Training against an opponent who holds a weapon in each hand more strongly develops the habit of evading more frequently to the side away from the other weapon. In the Filipino martial arts, this is often referred to as moving to zero pressure. This habit is very useful when engaged in empty hand fighting. 4. Increased hand and forearm strength. I have found weapons training to be among the finest methods of developing superior hand strength. Floro Villabrea, a famous Filipino martial artist, was a very small man by Western standards. He competed extensively in Hawaii in the early 20th century in a form of mixed martial arts that fought with sticks. He could husk a coconut, which usually requires a blade, with his bare hands. Imagine the benefits in the clinch and in grappling. 5. Empty Hand Defense versus Weapons Probably the single most important benefit that derives from weapons training is that it enhances your ability to defend against a weapon while you yourself are empty-handed. For example, training as a knife fighter is the most efficient path to understanding when a knife-wielding attacker has made a mistake and is vulnerable to counterattack. 6. Closely related to number 5 is close quarters combat for carriers of firearms. Just as it is a common mistake of logic to treat martial arts as if it were magic, the way many people think of firearms suffers from equally flawed logic. A handgun is not a magic wand that makes enemies comply with your wishes simply by pointing it in their general direction. Your chances of using a firearm effectively and safely are much greater if you train regularly under qualified supervision. A good teacher will help you learn which weapon is best for you, how to avoid mechanical failures, how to deal with them when they do happen, how to use concealment and cover to your advantage, and many other invaluable lessons. Beyond that, if you're going to carry a handgun, you should spend regular time at the range, sharpening your skills. It is also important to understand that deployment of a firearm from a holster or a place of concealment is not instantaneous. If you find yourself in a situation where your opponent is as close as 15 to 20 feet from you, and you perceive that he or she is armed with a knife or a club, and has bad intentions towards you, and your weapon is not already deployed, attempting to draw your weapon before engaging the opponent with your empty hands is nearly always a bad idea. Your odds of survival are best if you first establish a situation stable enough to deploy your firearm. Now, ideally, this would involve the use of speedy footwork for increasing your distance from the bad guy. Sadly, however, your environment will often be a constraint preventing you from moving away. In that case, you should prepare your stance, guard, and orientation for his or her approach, receive the attack, and neutralize it before establishing sufficient control to draw your weapon. 
This is difficult to describe in an audio setting like this, but practical and effective techniques for this exist, and they are based directly on empty hand techniques for defending against weapons, which are in turn directly based on weapon versus weapon techniques and concepts. For all of these and other reasons, I find weapons training a valuable and enjoyable part of the martial arts. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think at my website, rpmartialarts.com. This is Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. Somewhere in a bunker near Alpha Quirky, it's Ryan Lindsay, number one friend of the show, uh, your show notes master extraordinaire, and also now a martial arts newscaster. Hi, Ryan. How you doing? I'm good, Dave. How are you? I am. I am well. I am very well. <laughs> Weller than I have any right to be. Um. All right. So. Uh, let's do this right up front here before we uh, get into the news. You've been putting out some news that the folks can access via podcast form. Why don't you tell them where to get that? Because they are going to have a little dry socket in their feed for a while. Okay. Well, I'm putting out a, uh, it's just a weekly newscast. Uh, can be found at martialartsinthenews.com. Um, it's, it's that simple. Uh, I try to get it out every Wednesday or Thursday and it, covers well five to eight stories or so i think the longest one i've done so far is about six minutes right so it's a great thing like when you're driving to work or to the grocery store you get caught up on your martial arts news sure it just it, it saves you the trouble of, of going through google news alerts yeah which is a pain in the ass isn't it <laughs> oh yeah there's there's a lot of stuff in there that they seem to think applies that really does not Right. Well, what does apply? What's been coming down the pike this uh, the last couple of weeks? Or, hell, it's been a while since we've been on, so lather some news on me. All right. Well, f first up, we have a story out of uh, KFSN-TV in Florida. A suspected bank robber was stopped and hogtied by an MMA fighter in Largo, Florida. Uh, Eric Heretikus, known as the Jinja Ninja was in line at a Florida bank when a clerk yelled she was being robbed. I got to stop you Eric there because that's what I call Chuck Norris, the ginger ninja. Yeah, that seems fair. <laughs> okay, proceed. <laughs> well, he ran after the suspect, stopped him, and hogtied him with duct tape. I was wondering if it was a literal or a figurative hog tying. So he had some a roll of duct tape. Maybe he worked as a grip or something on a movie set, and that duct tape was just swinging. It was just... Who carries duct tape? That's what I want to know. 
Well, I do. Okay. <laughs> uh, we don't have to go into it, but let's just... I, I have a go bag in my vehicle that includes duct tape. Okay. Well, apparently this fella <laughs> did too. So how did it all work out for him? Uh, well, he went, he said that he, he just saw the right time and realized that if he had had a weapon, he would have already drawn it. So he timed it right and took the guy down. Uh, deputies arrived and arrested Michael Newbecker, who's been charged with one count of unarmed robbery. <laughs> He'll go armed next time if he has any sense. Yeah, and just for the listeners, it's probably not a real good idea to interrupt a robbery like that, unarmed or not. That's true, and uh, this is something I think has had a little lip time on the podcast before, but it's been a long time. Um, it's it's one of those things where you want to be safe and you want to tell everyone, be safe, it's only money, don't interrupt a robbery. But then again, we do martial arts for a reason, and we find ourselves in these situations. Sometimes you know, our, our, our passion or whatever gets a hold of us, or just our sense of indignity at watching something go down, and you know... The world does need that too, but yes, you're absolutely right, Ryan. The risks. Oh, this is definitely a case of do what I say, not as I do, because I would have done the same thing, I'm sure. I had a feeling you would. <laughs> That's what makes us a special breed, us martial artists. All right. Well, it worked out well for him that time. Uh, what a- it, it, it did. Awesome. Well, next up... Uh, Courtney Anya of Muscle Fitness Magazine reports that the medical journal The Lancet released a study suggesting a weak grip strength is uh, connected to a shorter life. The study of nearly 14,000 adults aged 35 to 70 from 17 different countries measured the individual's grip strength using a hand grip dynamometer. Subjects were uh, then followed for four years. During the follow-up, each person's health history was evaluated, and those who developed cardiovascular and non-cardiovascular disease had a lower grip strength. Results showed uh, that every 11-pound drop in grip strength correlated to a 16% increase in the risk of death from any cause, a 17% higher risk for cardiovascular death and non-cardiovascular-related death, a 7% higher risk of heart attack, and a 9% higher risk of stroke. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this one. I agree. And, you know, on its face, it may not scream martial arts, but I had just had a conversation with a, a, a guy I met, and he was talking about his judo training, and we got off on other martial arts, and, and he started talking about how he was reading about Hep Keto and some of the exercises exercises they did for grip strength and the martial art I do is very, you know, very based in Hepkido. And we started talking about it and we both realized, you know, we have this exact same body type. You know, we, we're about five, eight and 200 pounds. And, you know, we're, we're all low center mass and ha- have Popeye like forearms. So this is the kind of thing we do. <laughs> it was kind of important, you know, f- for those types of martial arts where you're always grabbing at somebody. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I I do hope that, like, for instance, in Bogwa, it's very much an upright grappling and striking art, so we do a lot of grabbing, too. And, and, you know, if you've ever seen anybody in the classic circle walking position, that hand is stuck out there and spread as wide as they can get it in most cases. There's a lot of hand exercise and, for, you know, forearm, it's all connected, that goes into the system. But I am wondering, on this study, um, you know, how, like, for instance, they broke it down into like 17% drops, uh, c- 
comparing that to, you know, the equivalent effects on certain health conditions. And I'm just, you know, wondering what the what the actual range was. Were they, you know, were they testing everyone from feeble old people? I, I want to know what the samples set was. I want to know a lot of other details about this, which I guess I could chase this thing down on PubMed. Do you know if it's published or not? I, I do not. But uh, I mean, the summary was that 14,000 adults age 35 to 70. That's a from seven, 17 different countries. So that's a pretty good size study yeah that is a, a nice sample uh, and i'm also wondering what they did to control for you know is was the grip strength contributing to their health or was it just a sign you know was it just correlation um uh you know if if you're already fitter are you going to have better grip strength if you're exercising more does that correlate to the drops that they're seeing in these conditions you know i, I wonder if that was all teased out you know i don't know uh but i think just from a common sense standpoint, if you take just outside of the study and go, you know, better grip strength is part of a, a better exercise regime, which is going to lead to better health, which would make sense that it's going to uh, lead to, you know, less of a risk of, uh, of certain diseases. So, yeah, and I think there might be something really interesting buried in there. Again, I'm going to have to track this down and see if I can find the actual study. But, you know, there may be something to things that emphasize the grip. Actually, you know, it, it's I'd like to think it's like you get the exercise all the way out to the ends of your, your limbs as opposed to if you're maybe just, you know, if you're not doing something that heavily engages the arms. Like you can run and keep a really good cardiovascular system, but it won't do crap for your grip. True. So there, Unless you're running with hand weights. There you go. <laughs> You've got an answer for everything there, fella. If I don't, I'll make one up. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, since I don't know any more about this study and I just keep asking, asking questions I can't answer, let's move on to the next story. What, what else have we got? All right. We've got a female kickboxer who had used her martial arts skills to defend herself against an attacker who was then praised by a judge who gave her a 500-pound reward for her bravery. According to the judge, Mark Willis bit off more than he could chew. Willis had targeted the woman as she walked home through uh, Cheltenham. He reportedly punched the victim before pushing her over a wall into a front garden and then jumping on top of her. The woman told the court how she first tried to break his arm with the hold she had been taught and then got him in a scissor grip with her legs, throttling him so forcefully that he passed out. She said, I closed my eyes and held it for as long as I could, hoping he would pass out in a few seconds. You know, and I felt his body go limp. I thought, he, okay, No, ahead. absolutely. You finish up. Sorry. I thought he had lost consciousness to run out of air. I flipped him off, rolled over, and crawled through the bushes to the door of a house. I could hear footsteps as he ran away and then a car starting. Uh, Willis's DNA uh, from his hands was found in the crotch of the woman's shorts. Willis admitted assaulting the woman, causing actual bodily harm, but denied sexual assault. The jury convicted Willis of sexual assault. So. Yeah, I think his excuse was he was... Uh she took a picture of him while he was peeing in someone's driveway and then he decided to beat her up and stick his hands in her crotch. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. That's how I remember it. Smart fellow here. He must've had a good lawyer too. Um, two things that really jump out to me about this story. Um, 
And again, listeners, Ryan's not editorializing all over uh, the stories in his newscast. Is this is just how I roll over here? I have to <laughs> throw my two cents on everything. But one, it sounded like you know she was tackled from behind and and took a couple of good licks before she could turn the tables in her favor. And it's just awesome that martial arts can give you the resiliency to take those hits if you're blindsided or whatever and fight your way back to the win. And uh, the other thing is I, I wish they'd put in a little more detail about that leg scissor because I'm assuming it was around his body and not his head. And that, that's a powerful leg scissor. You can knock people out like that, but it ain't easy. So she must have really had some oomph on that thing. Well, and the, I mean, her, her hope that it was going to go over in a few seconds it's like that that made me think well maybe she got it around his neck but but no you're you're right it, it was probably around the body yeah um that that's a it's an underutilized technique i think <laughs> i'm surprised you don't see more of that you know like people pull guard and they're kind of in that position but you rarely see anybody in, in mixed martial arts actually lock in and try to just you know maybe there's too many good counters for that on a professional level or whatever i don't know but i haven't haven't seen that used much have you no, to be honest, I'm I'm not much of an MMA fan. I I watch very little of it. I watch some, but uh, not enough to to actually be able to to comment on that. <laughs> okay, well, me either. So, I guess we'll move along on that one. But good on her, man. I and and good on you for picking out a few positive stories to go in in the news cycle. Well, and and one of the things that I thought was interesting about that story too is that that the judge there in England gave her 500 pound note you know for, for bravery yeah she, she like got a tip for bringing this guy down <laughs> that's awesome yeah like i i don't remember hearing anything like that going on in the states no i've never heard of that <laughs> even if you're in the right usually the court's gonna pick your pocket here yeah uh, uh, absolutely <laughs> so so triple good on her man she she had a red letter day there that could have turned out really bad absolutely but thanks to martial arts it didn't <laughs> Well, uh, last week it was reported uh, that there was a deal between India and China where Jackie Chan and Bollywood star Amir Khan would appear in a three-movie deal, uh, the first one being Kung Fu Yoga. And it came out this week that Amir Khan has made it clear he is not doing the film because uh, he'll be shooting another movie. Uh, who will end up starring alongside Chan, or if the three-movie deal between India and China will be put on hold is unknown right now. Yeah, this is this is a weird kind of kind of story. Uh, I, I think at the very least that a publicist somewhere has been sacked <laughs> because they put this thing out there like it was a, a, a surefire thing, and it almost sounded like uh, like uh, he didn't realize that he was supposed to be involved in the movie or something he's like no i've already got my schedule here's my schedule you know yeah i mean i have to admit i i'm not uh, a big fan of bollywood i i don't know much about it but apparently this amir khan is a big deal and you think they would have checked first yeah you, you think well it's jackie chan they'll make time for him <laughs> um i would <laughs> yeah i would too uh but you know stars but i would really be interested in seeing something like that if they could pull it together you know jackie chan doesn't have a ton of action time left in him uh and amir khan's uh, did i get his name right i assume okay. so uh he's <laughs> 
he's uh he's getting on up there a little bit too but you know he is i've seen a little bit of bollywood we used to carry this stuff at a video store i worked out along too so i know he's been a popular actor for a long time and some of the crazier action stuff that they do over there has has been has involved him so eh, it's kind of a shame it's not happening because i would love to see that probably be more interested in that than another owen wilson jackie chan movie which apparently is happening is also coming out shanghai dawn so. yeah you heard any scuttlebutt on that one yet i just have seen that it's uh, announced yeah that's all i saw yeah i, I reported that i want to say last week and and that it had been announced and that uh, owen wilson and jackie chan had, had both signed on and i don't know that anything else had come of it if i remember right uh either the original director or writer's back but not the other so yeah i think the writers are off but the original director's back um, yeah, I, I, I think that was the way it worked out. Which is cool because I definitely like the first one a lot better than the second one. So who knows? Maybe my negativity is misplaced. <laughs> well, you know, anytime you start putting numbers after a movie, I don't know that negativity can ever be misplaced. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's it's rarer than hen's teeth to get a two that's better than the one. Although it does happen. And a three, you're, you're shooting for the you're moon there. It. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. What else? Well, not not uh, nearly happy story, I guess. Uh, the Times of Israel reports that Moroccan authorities held the Israeli judo team for nine hours at an airport in Rabat, Morocco. The team had insisted on going to the tournament despite security concerns and travel difficulties because the event could provide team members with enough points to qualify for the 2016 Olympic Games. Moroccan authorities blamed the delay on Israel's lack of visas, but later claimed a gun had been found in one of the team members' luggage. The International Judo Federation Executive Committee was contacted by Moshe Panti, the chairman of the Israel Judo Association for Assistance. Marius Weiser, the president of the International Judo Federation's Executive Committee, threatened to cancel the entire competition unless the Israeli team was released. Moroccan authorities permitted the Israelis to proceed to their hotel under the protection of a unit of the King's security guards. During the competition, things did not improve for the Israeli team. The Israeli flag was absent from the venue. The tournament's website made no mention of the Israeli team. And members of the audience shouted, we're going to kill you while booing each member of the Israeli team as they appeared. The Israeli team won no medals during the tournament. And Ponti said, I'm very disappointed not with the results, but with the spectator's behavior. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Religious conflicts around the world. But well, this one in particular goes deep and has ruined a lot more, probably more important things than judo tournaments. But really, people, you can't just back up and be sportsman, sportsperson-like. Is it that hard to do, to put your differences aside, get on the mat, you know? What... And I, it seems like that really what they were trying to do was stop them from competing at all so they could force them out of the, you know, force them not to get those points that they needed to be able to compete uh, further internationally. It, it's just sad. Oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, you know, politics and religious differences aside, you know, like you said, it's just sportsmanship. And especially something like judo, it's you know, it, it, you know, there, there's sportsmanship and honor and everything that goes along with it. 
Yeah, yeah, both very honor-based cultures, but then they do something like this. I, it's, I'll, <laughs> almost wish we could have a little throwback where maybe we could just settle that whole Middle Eastern conflict. If you put your best guy on the mat, we'll put our best guy on the mat. The loser moves, you know. <laughs> Canada will take you, or you know, we got plenty of room in the Midwest. Let's just get this over with somehow, <laughs> and then we could all just get along. <clears throat> but I don't see that happening. No, it probably won't. A boy can dream. Well, oh, yeah. Well, do you have anything else for us? Maybe a little more positive? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've got one more. Okay, great. So, well, finally this week, a story by Rod McPhee for The Mirror reports on Commonwealth Games champion Ashley McKenzie's use of judo to overcome ADHD. At age 11... McKenzie was diagnosed with ADHD and placed on Ritalin. While it worked in respects to calming him down, it reduced his energy and he was tired all of the time. It was obvious that this would not be a long-term solution. McKenzie had violent episodes so frequently that he was placed in a psychiatric care unit for six months. One day, McKenzie got in a fight over Pokemon cards with a guy who just threw him with a judo move. McKenzie was so surprised and amazed by this, he joined the same club as him. McKenzie remembers that he still had a temper and continued to misbehave, though he never did so while he was at judo. As he aged and continued to practice judo, he gradually began calming down. According to McKenzie, when I started to get really good at it, judo gave me focus for all of my energy and anger. Even then, I knew without it, I would have ended up in prison. By age 19, McKenzie won the British Judo Open. He went on to win the World Cup and European Championship and took part in the London Olympics. While he did not medal in London, he did win gold in the Commonwealth Games. Dr. Tony Lloyd, CEO of the ADHD Foundation, has said, exercise is a great regulator of dopamine, the brain chemical that affects the symptoms of ADHD. So, you know, just another story on, on how martial arts training can help you with health absolutely and that's a great martial arts story i especially like the part where you know he gets in a fight with the guy over pokemon cards gets dumped on his butt and says uh can i come to your next class you know <laughs> i want some it, of that it, it's like right out of a movie because that's usually what happens absolutely and uh you know i you know me i'm a cautious type when it comes to this stuff and i'm certainly not going to prescribe martial arts for any specific ailment but uh it's fantastic exercise and exercise you know is one of the biggest cure-alls out there you know you can fight it's what we have evidence for you can you can fight back the you know the worst of diabetes with diet and exercise diet and exercise for you know controlling this sounds like the doctor's on board and says yeah you know it's regulating his dopamine levels and really helping with that and uh he had to get off the medication to compete right yes yes he so did. it even yeah i, I as a professional, he did. Yeah, so it it even gave him a way out of that, you know, uh, something to to motivate him. Um, you know, that that's just an awesome story. And with that, <laughs> so I didn't really have anything to add. Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. No problem. <clears throat> Look, Ryan, uh, I know you're aware that uh, we're going to be taking a break from the show, and uh, all the listeners have heard it plenty enough by now. So, uh, But I want to make sure before we do that, uh, you know, 
creek rises, I get swept away or something to make sure that the whole world knows how much I appreciate all the behind the scenes work you have done for this podcast. You've been instrumental in, in making this thing happen. And uh, the show notes are always brilliant. Uh, well done. And frankly, you know, the stickers, the uh, the champagne lounge, you know, you make that thing for me. And then I'm like, well, okay, I'm, I'm going to be gone for a while. But <laughs> it is proudly adorning the champagne lounge uh, fridge. And, uh, you know, people can go on the Facebook page and, page and check that out. And just general support, man. It's really meant a lot. Well, you're welcome. I'm glad to do it. And, and uh, after your break, I'll, I'll be ba- I'll be here for you and just let me know what you need. I will do that, buddy. And uh, I'm sure I'll be talking to you again soon. Okay, we're back for the wrap-up. Thanks so much to Matt Kaplowitz, Ryan Lindsay, and of course, sandwiched in there. Thank you, as always, to Jeff Westfall with the Marshall Brain segment. Uh, yeah, it's a good episode. I enjoyed making that. And I enjoyed making the one you're going to hear next week. Um, and that's what I came back in to tell you about. It should be about a week. About a week. The way my life goes, I ain't making no promises. But about a week after this one, you will get part two mysterious episode uh 65 uh and then it's probably gonna go dark for a while uh i will have a month i'll be working but the family will be away this summer so what i might do i want you to leave your feeds open because again i'm parking it not taking it out behind the barn and shooting it so uh i might try just for fun to do a couple of bonus episode ideas i've had that didn't really fit with the main framework and, you know, may be of interest to some of you and may not be of interest to some of you, but uh, I figure, you know, if I can pull it together, that may be a good time to throw that stuff out there. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And, uh, you know, if if Hi-Ya comes back as Hi-Ya, then you'll hear about it in our feed or over on the Facebook page. If it comes back as something different, I'll notify you in all the old spots too. So like I said, it doesn't cost anything to keep the feet open. It's not like your power bill or anything. So uh, just leave it there. You might get some bonus episodes. Who knows what's going on, folks? But I just need to. I need to take a step back, and I need. Uh, and I appreciate everything you've done for the podcast and uh, all the input you've written in. We're going to go through a bunch of that in the next show. Uh, several letters we got from listeners. And, uh, yeah, you know, I can go on more about this at the end of that time. So uh, I'm just going to leave it till then. Cheers, everyone. Until next time.
right, hi, hi, listeners, coming to you live from an undisclosed co- uh, location. Oh, shit, I blew it. I'm going to try it again. <laughs>